somebody actually pointed out to me that, hey, you're black. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I have. It's kind of like, you know, the, it, at the end of the sixth sense with Bruce Willis, where he, <laughs> like, he he's like envisioning, oh, my God, I, uh, you know, I'm actually dead. Um, so I, I'm actually black. First I got your voicemail, then I got you. But we can meet in person or maybe on Zoom. So tell me what your genre, tell me what do you do? I'd like to know the things that specifically make you Hey there, I'm Tim Barnes, you are the genre, and in each episode of this show, I ask awesome people about the first genres that inspired them, the first crafts they pursued, and how they feel about that pursuit now. This episode features my conversation with Dr. Mary Rambrin Ohm, a.k.a. MRO, a.k.a. ISA Saxonists, on the website currently or formerly known as Twitter, depending on when you're listening to this. I just have a weird feeling that it won't be called X forever. But whatever it is that you call that site, the fact remains that it's the reason Dr. Rambrin Ohm and I crossed paths. You see, a few years ago, on the night that Queen Elizabeth died, I tweeted something that caught the zeitgeist of both her passing and something else that was in the news. The new Amazon Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power series that had everyone debating about whether black people or other shades of human could exist in Middle Earth. That tweet caught the attention of thousands, including MRO, who is a black literary historian who specializes in the Middle Ages and also makes specialized yarn with an educational twist over at republicofyarnia.com. So join me as we explore the surprisingly daring and adventurous chapters of her career and what I'm calling, there and back again, A Historian's Yarn by Mary Rambrin Olm. I'm excited about this because I don't remember how we got into the same circle on Twitter, but what I do remember is that after the death of Queen Elizabeth, I had... (laughs) (laughs) she died at at the at the same time that there is a swirl of controversy right was that the elves the or the The, yeah 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 all all i wrote was that uh her last words were elves can't be black and it went (laughs) it was like like it was so i think it worked because the context was technically vague but everyone knew that with the timing and everything what it was referencing and the idea that queen elizabeth's final words are that elves can't be black um it made me laugh and apparently made a thousands of people laugh. Uh, yeah i think that's still one of my all-time favorite tweets because uh, i think you would put i think you'd put a video as well and then oh yeah your, <laughs> you know elizabeth accent was just like spot on as well yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, you kind of entered my internet world at that point, and you are a sort of crusader against specifically (laughs) racist to the level of saying things like elves can't be black, that there were no black people in medieval England or whatever. And it feels like there has to be such a compelling journey that led to you dedicating a large portion of your life to this. And I, I, I can't wait to figure what, what all that is. 
It's actually very boring. So um, <laughs> this is going to be a very quick um, podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way that it's boring. You are a literary scholar specializing in early medieval England from the 5th to 11th centuries. I don't know if mm-hmm. that's true. That's just what Wikipedia told me. <laughs> uh. <laughs> that that's pretty true. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. You you can you can plagiarize that. And, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, how does it feel to be someone who has a Wikipedia page? To me that is that's better than any like verification badge on any website. Like that yeah. is like, oh, this is a, this is the real deal. No, this is, it's, it's embarrassing and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, to dive into the meat of this podcast, I have to ask, what is the first genre that caught your attention? Hmm. Can I, can I cheat and say more than one thing? Or yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay. definitely. Oh. Well, I think initially still something that I go to if I'm stressed out is cartoons. I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, and cartoons were a big part of my life. And um, it wasn't until I was (laughs) actually in grad school that I realized that, hey, like half of these, you know, cartoons are actually set in the Middle Ages as well. (laughs) Like it didn't even occur to me, like the Smurfs and gummy bears. and Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. The Smurfs make sense, but did you say gummy bears? Yeah, the gummy bears is set do, in. Yeah. I do not remember a gummy bears cartoon. Wow. <laughs> wow. They were. You're telling me there was a cartoon about medieval gummy bears? <laughs> it was a. They they had like gummy berry juice, and they would drink this, you know, super juice or whatever, and it would make them bounce. That was like their their thing. I I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember like this. Some I was too young, I think, when when it was on initially. So it's mostly reruns, and you know they had like the medieval garb on, and there was a you know a magician and a cook and a like all of these you know from the guilds. <laughs> yeah. But whatever the I don't even know who the bad guy was, but however they got away from him was with that gummy berry juice, I think. So. <laughs> I am definitely falling down, uh, speaking of Wikipedia, a Wikipedia rabbit hole, learning everything I possibly can about this cartoon. I was also a reader as a child, so spent a lot of time in books because growing up, I didn't have a, a whole lot of money. And so my dad used to buy me encyclopedias. We had an old copy of The Hobbit and um, yeah, ended up reading all of the Lord of the Rings. And um, I think... Very early on, too. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is another one that yeah oh. stuck with me. And more recently, I learned that Charlie was supposed to be black. Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel like I remember yeah. hearing that. So, I mean, that would have been wild to, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> just have, you know, this this depiction of this little black boy who, you know, take down the house with, with the Oompa Loompas, but whatever. They can redo it. <laughs> well, of course, if they redo it, the golden ticket becomes a handout. <laughs> I can already hear the Republican, uh, <laughs> the Republican spin on the, on the yeah. Story. Um, you know, Ch- Charlie's absent father just reappears <laughs> when he when he wins the golden ticket. Yeah. Well, this is interesting, and I feel like I'm already seeing some parallels between these early genres that you loved. I mean, of course, with the Smurfs and the medieval gummy bears. 
that's clear. But even with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as you mentioned, there is this discovery later that Charlie was at one point supposed to be a person of color, a black Mm -hmm. character. And this seems to be a sort of tendency that you are resisting against in terms of the way that we, as a mass culture, think about the past. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we have a very whitewashed vision of it. I also loved a lot of medieval stuff when I was a kid. And I got into, I mean, when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, oh my goodness, I watched that first, The Fellowship of the Ring, every (laughs) day the summer that the DVDs came out. And I read all the books. And I remember there being a bit of a point of tension with my dad. I I mean, because he's watching his black son reading all Mm -hmm. these these books about, about, you know, just white magical things. You know, I wanted to write. And so I was like writing my own medieval thing. And he's like reading some of my work. And he's like, how come... I mean, are, are any of these characters black? And I was like, well, no, because... It's historically know, accurate. Seen a black <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this fantastical world that I'm inventing is historically accurate. They can't... And I, and, and I didn't know how to... What it meant to write black characters mm-hmm. in that space. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it connects to all kinds of problems that we have as a as a culture and a, as a society that you know sometimes there there can be a blockage even for a black person in envisioning themselves in a mm-hmm. certain space how did you interact with these interests outside of just enjoying reading them and in, enjoying watching those shows were you creating things as well <laughs> well like you i used to like you know i used to write as well and yeah i think one of the sort of things that has also stuck with me throughout my life is um, crafting and just working with my hands. I have a little side business with hand-dyed yarn. So also it was kind of a a cheap sort of type of entertainment that my parents encouraged because we didn't, again, raising me with not a lot of money. Pen and paper was, was fun. I did create my own worlds as well. And Maybe that was partly just sort of escape from things, but, uh, you know, growing mm. up in <laughs> in the hood, but also um, it was a predominantly white area as well. So there was a level of tension there. And uh, in school, um, not having, not going to the greatest schools, and there was a lot of uh, violence. And, you know, when people hear this, they usually think, oh, did you grow up in New York or something? It's like, no, I grew up in <laughs> Western Canada, actually. And <laughs> <laughs> so we had gun violence and whatever else. And yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So I think these sorts of things and being able to escape just even in reading as well was just a way to kind of tap out when things were were weird. Yeah. I mean, speaking of, you know, blind spots of the imagination, as someone who was a sheltered kid in the the black hood of South Central LA, you know, not allowed to go around the block diving into books and stuff. Me trying to visualize you growing up in the white, did you say Western mm-hmm. Canada hood mm-hmm. where there is gun mm-hmm. violence is hard for yeah. me to believe because everything that I hear about Canada is like, oh, guns aren't don't even exist there. And uh, there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> So, I mean, we don't have to talk about this too much, but that is a fascinating clash. And it seems that escapism was a big part of your life in your childhood. Were you able to visualize yourself in these fantastical worlds? Like, I mean, I really didn't have any difficulty envisioning 
Actually, I'm sure that there are tons of uh, actual writing about this, but in your mind's eye, when you imagine yourself in worlds, is race a factor? I feel like when I was a kid, race is something that I kind of grew into as I got older, but I didn't even really consider mm. you know, the optics of a black person in whatever thing I was imagining. I was just imagining, you know, having fun in this space. Was there any, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, anything like that in your life? I think uh, it's probably similar to you. I just sort of imagined me there. And I didn't, like, one of the things is, you know, we, as children of color, we, it depends on, you know, our environment, how we're you know, who, who we're interacting with, how we see ourselves as well. And in my immediate family, everyone was, you know, black and brown. I didn't realize that I was, you know, an other until I started school. And somebody actually pointed out to me that, hey, you're black. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I am. It's kind of like, you know, the, at the end of the sixth sense with Bruce Willis where he, like, he he's envisioning oh my god I uh, you know I'm actually dead um so I'm actually black and so yeah I think uh it wasn't until I was a little bit older well actually a lot older that I started to see race in things like in even in Lord of the Rings I always pictured Aragorn as black um uh, I still do so <laughs> I don't care what, what, whatever, Vigo, whatever his name is. Um, <laughs> he's, he's a black man to me. So do you think that in a way that was you actively ignoring a Tolkien description of this, uh, snow like face? I have no idea what he wrote about describing Aragorn. I think he, he, it's more, I think he's a very shadowy figure and his description, you know, I mean, Tolkien doesn't really describe race apart from, uh, you know, we <laughs> scholars were just, you know, there was all these online debates about the hobbits and, you know, their, their oh, sun-kissed yeah. skin and whatever. And as an old English scholar, I know, you know, that was Tolkien's field as well. And what he wrote about race in some of his translations of old English, <laughs> he was, he was very, he was fairly racist um, <laughs> at the, you know, at the time. So I usually get, you know, the online white supremacists, like, how dare you? And, um, you know, I've spent days sort of hurling insults back and forth, but I don't think there was anything specifically. I know someone's probably going to point out now that, oh, yes, they're in, you know, in chapter two of whatever Aragorn is actually described with, you know, golden hair and whatever. But from what I remember, I haven't read the books in a long time, is that he is just sort of this dark figure. Yeah, especially when he's Strider. Yeah. And I think that that may be intentional, just so that the big reveal is until the end anyways. So did you channel all of these factors into whatever your first official craft that you pursued was like do you consider the the yarn work as your first official craft or you know what was the first step that you tried to take was it medieval related or was it something else entirely from the area that I was from I wasn't even expected to graduate from high school and so I ended up going defying the odds and you know just kind of giving the middle finger to people who didn't have any hope in some of us and made it to university. And yeah, I, I became a medievalist, you know, um, just sort of fell into that. I 
I thought about medical school and that's expensive. <laughs> so it's, it's more expensive than being a medievalist and uh, it, it pays better. And it's, yeah. So I made the wrong decision there, but um, I loved history. So I just sort of carved out space for myself, really, because, again, I was the only person of color pretty much all the way through undergraduate and uh, graduate school. Yeah, I mean, I love that. It feels like you were defying the odds, but you're also in a space where I feel I can only imagine all the kinds of tension that were in the air when you were in this medievalist space at the university. Yeah. How many people of color would you say, you know, attended these classes with you? I'm fairly certain I was, <laughs> I was the only one. Um, yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think as an undergraduate, I think there was one student who's uh, an Asian <laughs> student, and then uh, she ended up in a kind of going in a, a different path. That wasn't for her. So when you're in it, you just kind of go with it. And I think for all of us, we we know how to code switch. When you're, I, I think it's with any sort of academic careers, you just kind of put your head down and and push forward. And, uh, for me, I just kind of, (laughs) this is a therapy (laughs) session now. I just kind of suppressed, suppressed what, what kind of tension was there and just kind of tried to focus on, you know, I, I would like a PhD. And so just went for it. It makes me think about, you know, when you see the one or two white people in a African-American studies class or something like that, And, but that always seems like, oh, this is the cool white person who wants to learn about jazz and stuff, (laughs) you know? Uh, But the reverse (laughs) of that, uh, I can also imagine there being perhaps some tension with the black and brown people in your life, learning that this is your, your field of study. Was that something as well? Yeah. I mean, it was, it it was coming from like sort of all sides, like, what are you doing in my white field? (laughs) Is one, one of the things. And then the other, you know, family and friends, what are you doing in those (laughs) white fields? And uh, so it was, uh, yeah, but you know, my parents were, were supportive in whatever I wanted to do. I think they're proud of me. So, but they, I mean, they knew more than anybody, the sort of challenges, just being in spaces like that. And I had different questions a lot of the times than, than other students or even profs had. And so that too sort of helped kind of carve out a different path in medieval studies for me. I think it's interesting that, you know, the stuff that you're watching as a kid, it's like, oh yeah, there were little blue people in the medieval world. There were colorful gummy bears in the medieval world. But then as you get older, you get mm-hmm. challenged when you start to say, hey, there, there are black people in the medieval <laughs> There are black human mm-hmm. beings in the uh, medieval world. Yeah. When did you get to the point where you started to notice that specific friction? I, I remember going to I took a study abroad trip to to Rome. Uh, my brief time in college, I went to Santa Barbara City College. I wanted to be a filmmaker, and we went to Rome. And I remember going to a museum and hearing for just like a millisecond a little factoid about an emperor being a black person, and then moving on and be like, "Can we can we just like dedicate thirty minutes to this? This is the most <laughs> fascinating thing yeah. I've ever heard about in my life." And I feel like all of the information mm-hmm. about black people and, and the white ancient world or, you know, medieval world 
you, you, it's not like it's hidden, but it is, it is so not expanded upon in a way that makes you feel like a mm-hmm. conspiracy theorist by doing any sort of research on it. Yeah, it's it's very often it's this sort of secret thing that hey there you know there there was this black man in the 12th century and he's in a manuscript and then it's like okay <laughs> let's turn the page and, <laughs> and but for me I think that everything sort of came to a head when I was thinking of a topic for graduate school and my proposal was basically on otherness and I wanted to look into representations of the devil, Mm. but also how he's described as an other as black people or others are described. So the otherness of Satan and also the fact that, you know, there's one old English poem where he sings and that's John Milton in the 16th century here, 17th century. uh, He ends up ripping that off sort of. And again, we're into plagiarism since that's a topic of discussion. <laughs> but uh, um, so, so he sings this beautiful song, and so he's very appealing, and there isn't really anything that makes him an antagonist. It's just by the fact that he's the devil, and he's supposed to be evil and bad, but he's actually beautiful and whatever. And so this old English poem describes him in a different way, but there's this otherness to him, which is connected to how people of color are described in Old English as well. So that's what I wanted to look into. (laughs) A potential, I sent my topic to some schools and a prof accidentally CC'd me or replied to me instead of his secretary to say that speaking about race in this way is very flaky. Oh, Um, Yeah, so I didn't go to that school. (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of, it made me sort of rethink what was acceptable in the field and if I wanted to be accepted. And uh, so I changed my topic altogether. And uh, that started a more traditional path that I thought was going to work out and that didn't either. So I just, <laughs> if you read that Wikipedia, there's it's probably <laughs> a list of like controversies. And so, yeah, I ended up like kind of kind of destroying an organization. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, let's talk about that. I I read it, but I, you know, I I, I went to City College. It was a little over my head. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But it feels like this ties in so perfectly with the purpose of this show, because by doing this, which we're about to talk about, it seems like you're allowing yourself to enter the space of truly doing the thing that feels like it's your calling. But Mm -hmm. can you uh, describe to me the organization that you destroyed? uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I was part of kind of the only organization in the field of Old English, which is a different sort of subfield in all of medieval studies, you know, pre-conquest England. So we, you know, do paleography and linguistics and history and whatever. There's, we're kind of jacks of all trades. So there's this organization, it was called the International Society of Anglo-Saxonists. And for the longest time, you know, as a a young scholar, or even as a grad student, I just kind of went and it was a very, very white space. I I was asked to pick up plates and whatever at times because people at these conferences thought I was the help. (laughs) That's not good. Yeah. um, Even with the, (laughs) you know, the name tag and everything. Yeah. So eventually 
time goes on, it's, you know, the 2017-ish after Charlottesville, all of that stuff had sort of happened in, in the States and, you know, this fear that our field was being hijacked by white supremacists was kind of in the air, even though um, we had like white supremacists in our field anyways, but whatever. Um, I was an unaffiliated scholar at the time. I was still on the market and I was asked to join and be this the second vice president of the organization. And so I thought about it and was hoping that I just wouldn't be a token. So I... Yeah. I wanted to make some actual changes and to see what I could do and work with people. And if we were all there in good faith and see what we could do, there was a vote and I got in. And then after about two years, things were just not moving. And we had other problems as well. There was a sexual predator where a story came out about him publicly as well. And he had he had like a lifetime membership and I wanted him stripped of that because it was making it an unsafe space for his victims. And there were lots of victims. So that's another sort of thing in academia. That's really gross. But so I, you know, that, that was one of the challenges. And then also just getting young scholars more involved, uh, allowing them to be part of this space because it was a very, old and traditional organization. And so, you know, we could breathe new life into it by having representation in all sorts of ways. And um, all of that stuff was kind of squashed. So I, at a different conference, ended up publicly resigning and saying, like, I can't be involved in this organization anymore. And so it made the news and people sort of thought that I had resigned because of the name. Oh, yeah. That's what the Wikipedia says. Yeah, that it was because of the term Anglo-Saxon, which has been, you know, something that we've been debating. I I ended up being attached to the term, you know, ironically, that, <laughs> um, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon. So, uh, but the one thing that I did is I had created a Twitter account for the organization And so I kept that for myself, repurposed it and made demands publicly (laughs) and, and the the organization just freaked out. And so they didn't, so they ended up having a vote at least on the name and they changed a lot of their policies or, you know, in terms of harassment and stuff, (laughs) they wanted like an online harassment thing in there as well, because Mary was bullying people (laughs) and and whatever. So um, I love this so much because I identify with that feeling of the feeling of opportunity mm-hmm. that emerges often through a tragedy where uh, <laughs> where you have an opportunity to to take on a, a larger role, despite arguments of it being a token position or not, you mm-hmm. want to go into that space with a glimmer of hope that you can make some honest change. And it sounds like you were there for a couple of years and that honest change wasn't happening in a number of ways. And then you were like, well, I still can use this role in a way that none of you are expecting because you're, you're expecting me to be, you know, a, a sort of docile pawn and yeah. everything. And I, I feel like I would watch an entire TV show about what you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think so many um, people of color fantasize about this in a way. 
and then yeah, you actually well, did it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was surreal. And the speed with which things started to happen. And then when Washington Post sort of picked it up and then uh, you know, Breitbart and all these right-wing <laughs> media outlets started to pick it up. And so, yeah, it just sort of grew uh, its own kind of... Uh, head and snowballed. Some of the things that came out of it were good. So I can't complain about that. I, there's always the, the backlash and whatever. But yeah, and I, I suppose I just never kind of fell out of that role. So that's why people ask why my Twitter account or, or whatever people call it now, I, it's still Twitter to me, you know, is ISAS Axonists. And I just... You know, I say because it's 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 ours, it's mine as well, <laughs> as well. And so, and I know that it just makes um, you know racist angry. So that, that's that's a good thing as well. Don't scroll away. You are the genre. We'll be right back after the break. You are the genre is currently an independently produced podcast, which is my way of saying I haven't figured out how to get actual ads in here just yet. So why don't I just promote something of my own, or at least something of my co-own? Turns out, You Are the Genre isn't the only place that you can hear my voice. I co-host a Star Wars-themed podcast called Yub Nub with my pals Jim Fagan and Greg Iwinski. And Greg, as it turns out, is my next guest on You Are the Genre. What better way to get the inside scoop on our dynamic than hopping over to Yub Nub right now and giving it a listen? By the way, if you become a paid subscriber to my newsletter, you can listen to new episodes of You Are the Genre a week ahead of everyone else. So why don't you just do that? Get more information at youarethegenre.com. Now, back to the episode. Where were we? You sound very conscious of money when you talk about your youth. And I feel like that must have been a part of what made the decision to do all this challenging. Because did it feel in a way that you were perhaps putting your career and future money at risk by doing all this stuff? Totally. Um, <laughs> one of the things that happens when these sorts of events or whatever happen is that people create myths about you. And one of the myths was that my dad was very rich and that he flew to, you know, when, when I was in grad school, that he flew there and told one of the professors off. And I was like, oh, I don't even know how that <laughs> happened. But that's it's a great story. Um, but it, it just, <laughs> at the time, I was still wondering if I had a future in the field. And I was on the fence. I ended up at the University of Toronto. And again, it was just kind of because they were riding the wave of this. And also, you know, after 2020, <laughs> trying to, they had put out, you know, the statements about BLM. And I just realized in the end that taking an ethical stand was more important than anything and being true to, to history and to myself um, were more important. So I ended up leaving anyways. I left academia sort of publicly wrote my manifesto and left and started public scholarship and teaching on Patreon and also just doing stuff for free <laughs> because yeah. I know that there are people who are in a position like I was in school, you know, they just didn't have access. So I'm trying to make things more accessible for people because like you had said too, you know, like that the stories about these black figures is, 
you just get this little taste and it's like, okay, and moving along now. So we can actually go into detail and in depth with these stories and with these figures. And that's one of the things I do with my yarn as well, because all of the yarn is inspired by black figures. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what what was your, uh, <laughs> what's what's going on with the yarn during all this? Yeah, well, the, I mean. Knowledge years and, and this big <laughs> fiasco. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's actually growing into something that's not just a side gig anymore. It's, you know, I'm very grateful for the support that I've had. It's It's bizarre. I never thought that, you know, I'd go through grad school and I'd just be end up selling <laughs> yarn, pink yarn um, and calling it Doomsday Man or whatever. So um, I just figured, too, that this was a way, uh, partly because I think that crafting in any kind of form, even if it's writing, you know, those sorts of things, they're therapeutic. And it's also, it's a way for us to take back our time we are robbed of so much time. I'm robbed of so much time just being on Twitter and arguing oh, yeah. over black elves or whatever. But <laughs> um, to me, this is like a weapon and it's revolt. It's like saying, no, you're not going to to steal my time and I'm going to carve this space for me because we do need that. We need to restore. I still see the things that all of us are doing. It's a battlefield. And yeah. so, yeah, we do need to take that time. So, the yarn is just to encourage people to uh, be creative. And at the same time, I am able to show people that there are actually black figures who existed or who were presented in, in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance or 17th century and sort of pull colorways. So it's a way to teach and introduce people to, to these figures as well. That's a beautiful way to phrase what you're doing. And I also think that what you're doing is an awesome way to teach people about this stuff because so much of the way that we learn about medieval white characters and figures is through, you know, I don't want to call your yarn an odd little thing, but through these odd, <laughs> these oddities throughout the day. Like, you know, you're, you're hearing about King Arthur or you're hearing about whatever, not necessarily from a history book, from something else. And mm -hmm. I feel like you were creating that something else. Uh, it's something that people can engage with. And I think it cements the facts behind it. Like mm -hmm. the fact that I, <laughs> that I can uh, work with some yarn named after a historical figure makes me feel the worth of that historical figure a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's an accurate way to describe that. I feel like you might be offended that I... I <laughs> no, no, it's it's true. I mean, th there there are actually people who have bought who who feel more connected even to history, especially Black history, because there's so many of these figures that they just didn't even know who they existed, and so learning about them in this way and then having yarn in your hand is almost like being connected to them. Um, so yeah, I do sort of a monthly thing as well where I have a, a group of people who they get a monthly, a, a yarn skein is like, you know, it's like a, a ball when it's not a ball yet of yarn. So they get one of those and then a write-up on a figure that the colorway is based on. So there, there's this, you know, double whammy for them. I can't help but connect what you're doing, you know, teaching. Uh, how did you describe it again? Public scholarship. Public scholarship. Yeah, I've never heard of that, uh, that phrasing. Um, but it, it feels similar to what a lot of people 
that I know are doing on the entertainment side of things where the mass system <laughs> is uh, is conglomerating and demands so much of us before we seem viable for it mm-hmm. or kind of churns people out and people are creating their their own spaces to replicate you know what television is to replicate what radio is and some people to massive success but within all that there is a, a level of uncertainty and a level of you know if you're more on the Joe Rogan sphere of things versus you know <laughs> versus I imagine if Bill Nye the science guy you know started his own podcast where he smoked weed and interviewed people I imagine <laughs> that would be a little bit more um, uh, fact-based. In that world of things, what are the challenges? The challenges that come along are different than when you're in academia officially, because you have to create everything from, I mean, you have to do that in with for lessons in, in academia as well, but you're creating lessons for people from all walks of life, some of which are just coming from all over the world. So there's places I'm not familiar with and, you know, these people are, I, you know, I'm, I'm following you, I'm reading your work or whatever. And, you know, there's the the challenge of just trying to make things as accessible as possible. And how do you do that? So, uh, and, and how do you reach people without coming across like you're a grifter as well? Because, you know, that's (laughs) another thing that that's one of the other sort of criticisms of, oh, you're, you're just like a, you're creating all this controversy to make money. I was like, wow, I'd like to see that money at least <laughs> eventually. <laughs> but um, yeah. And then, you know, another thing too, is the challenge of how am I going to make money to survive as well? Because if all of this stuff is free, how do I survive to, to continue to do this? Because another thing too, is that I do, you know, tutorials and I do things on YouTube as well, just to give people access to things. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I don't want to be a YouTube star or whatever influencer, or whatever they're called. So um, being able to do that and carve out time. Another thing, one of the challenges is just having time to do all of this while trying to survive. <laughs> and, yeah. and yeah, so there's, you know, it, it's, I don't, I don't know if anything is particularly unique. Um, I think those are challenges that we all sort of face, like, how am I going to eat? And how, how am I going to? <laughs> um, but I suppose one of the things is to make sure that I'm being accurate and honest, because you don't want to, especially if you're doing public scholarship is, uh, if you're inaccurate, you're going to get dragged. <laughs> and, um, you know, rightly so, but so, uh, you want to make sure that what you're putting out there is is true. Yeah. I mean, because you don't want to be in the same category as Trump University or whatever school Kanye <laughs> yeah. West started or yeah. or all of these things. Um, I'm starting to consider that world in earnest for the first time right now. It does make me understand an element of what the purpose of colleges and universities are, mm. which is just like an official stamp that everyone recognizes as something that means something <laughs> that means something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think everything is becoming, it seems, variations of exactly what you're doing, exactly what I'm doing by making this show in the way that I'm doing it. And it'll be interesting to see how how this all <laughs> how this all evolves and <laughs> what systems enter the fray that uh, that can give some semblance of understanding of what is fact and what is fiction and what is trustworthy, basically. Mm-hmm. 
Sorry that I feel like I went on a tirade there, but no, I mean that, that that's good though. I mean, I I hadn't really thought about it, but it's exactly what you're doing. I mean, you know, you you, you could have a a segment every once in a while on correcting the Middle Ages. <laughs> we'll just pull out the yarn and start. I do want to know a little bit more about so so you you ruined this organization and then, uh, <laughs> I did yes and then. Uh, how did that feel? And were the and all of the endorphins positive? Like, uh, it must have been so much adrenaline, but also it must have been such a relief, ultimately, I feel like. Um, it felt like a heavy burden <laughs> uh, <laughs> because everything sort of fell on me, that people were looking at me. Like, I, I was put into this sort of leadership role leading this sort of rebellion. And again, you know, like, people compared me to the old English poem where Satan, you know, falls and he takes a third of the angels with him. And so that, you know, MRO became Satan. <laughs> and that, that sort, of, sort of stuck with me that I, that I was just this evil sort of, so, I mean, it, 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 I had sort of two ways of looking at me, I suppose, from, from the outside that people either saw me as this savior figure or whatever, or that I was just, you know, this evil person who was out to destroy things. And my intent was not to destroy, destroy anything, really. I I wanted things to be better. And I think that, you know, a lot of people too, the backlash was, well, some, you know, particularly white women who were saying things like, well, you should wait in line like we did. And it was like, whoa, um, what do you think I am? (laughs) Am I not a woman too? Um, Yes. But I suppose it was, I don't really ever think I felt relief because to be honest with you, things have never really slowed down. Hmm. (laughs) There's always this, you know, let's get MRO involved or let's use MRO as a lightning rod. And it's tiring sometimes, but it also led to, it led to some good things. I mean, I have met some wonderful people. I mean, I got connected to people that I just wouldn't have had access to. I mean, I'm I'm on your podcast. Like what <laughs> how would we have met if we didn't, you know, if we didn't start mocking the queen at the same time and she didn't die at the same time that this Lord of the Rings thing came out. So, yeah, so there's there's that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, the other controversy that sort of ended up in what I uh, think that New York times or whatever about the, the bright ages thing, which was the other controversy. And um, that was just another sort of layer to all of this as well is that I have been somebody who was speaking out about certain things and about being more honest and open about not just how we present the middle ages, but also how the field is represented and there are discussions that are, I'm sure, are still ongoing, uh, you know, about anti-blackness and whatever else, racism in the field. But we, uh, with a, with that other controversy with the Bright Ages, that that's probably on the Wikipedia thing too. <laughs> this, this I, I wrote a review of a book that I thought was not not up to scratch, and I was actually approached to write it. So I, I, I didn't I didn't go to anybody to to say, look, I, I'm interested in this book because I actually wasn't. And <laughs> so then they were expecting a very positive review and I could, oh, yeah. I was just honest with it. And 
I thought I was being fair. And also the authors had asked me to review a chapter and I had told them, I'd given them some feedback basically saying that they needed to rewrite it because it just wasn't there. But again, many of us are tokenized and so they just wanted somebody who they could put into their acknowledgments. Thank you for reading this over and giving us positive review. I was like, no, 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 that's not how it works. So they ended the, the editor and I parted ways and then it kind of blew up again and the story kind of got its own wings and and you're just like i just want to i just want to i just want to i just want to dye yarn and (laughs) and crochet all day i I don't want to do this (laughs) so um yeah so we so here we are again in this you know kind of mess and i again i didn't think that it needed to be this big story but it, it ended up being one and then the way that in academia that people are being attacked from the right or whatever is they will go after your, not just your academic work, but they'll go and attack who you are as well. And so it was, it just evolved into this monster thing. And people were saying that I wasn't even a historian and then <laughs> that I was a race faker. Initially I was white and then the next thing I wasn't black and then I wasn't yeah. black enough. And then they, people were literally posting pictures of me and measuring my skull. Oh my God. They were doing digital phrenology. <laughs> yes. It was like <laughs> they brought up the calipers and were. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're trying to, trying to Sean, Sean King. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm not Helcom X. So yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, my. Parents would have words for that. But um, yeah, because I'm who I am in the field, I think it it sort of brings a different sort of backlash that other people just, they either hadn't seen before or they just wouldn't expect. So um, that's exposed a lot of things in in our field, but also in academia. So, Well, I think it's amazing that, again, going back to your original genres of the gummy bear and Smurfs medieval cartoons, Mm -hmm. and it seems like in your youth you were crocheting and doing yarn work uh, separate from that specific interest. And now you fuse those two things into one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very, that seems like a very beautiful thing. I wonder how, how do you reflect on the decision to enter? <laughs> you touched on it briefly, but the decision to to focus on medieval studies versus uh, the more expensive path of becoming a doctor. Like when you think about that point in your life where you made that choice, are you happy about it? <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. Um, <laughs> um, there are there are things I wouldn't change. I'm proud of what I've done so far, but maybe if I was a little bit braver before, I don't know if if things would have turned out differently or or what. But actually, you know, I think I am I'm I am glad that things happened the way they they did because I'm able to I'm able to interact and reach audiences that I just wouldn't have had the the ability to do if I was doing traditional scholarship. So I still wouldn't recommend people go into medieval studies, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy with, uh, how things are. And, um, if I ever do figure out the potion for gummy bear juice, then you know, I, I'm totally set. Well, if I ever write a medieval epic, 
and I need someone to, you know, make sure that I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm all covered in terms of how I'm presenting things. I'm definitely going to give you a call. Do it. Yes. <laughs> or, or you could just write, you know, a horror story about academia and oh, black, yes. black people in medieval studies <laughs> and um, make it like get out. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been great. And uh, I hope it didn't feel too much like a therapy session. But if it did, I hope that it was a good therapy session. It was good. I feel I feel relief. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Want more from Mary Rambrin Ohm? Visit republicofyarnia.com. Freddie Nunez created the theme song for You Are the Genre, and Adam Smith produced it. Comedian and writer Greg Iwinski joins me next episode. But if you become a paid subscriber to my newsletter... You can listen to it a week ahead of the normies. This is Tim Barnes signing off with your weekly reminder that you are the genre. Yeah, man. First I got your voicemail, then I got you. But we can meet in person or maybe on Zoom. So tell me what's your genre, tell me what do you do? I'd like to know the things that specifically me